October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number 25, Fall of a Titan. Last time, we talked about the death of our old friend, Joseph Bates, the first founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Bates's end was poetic. He passed away in the first medical institution of the church that he helped to build. We also talked about General Conference President George Butler's ideas on leadership. Butler was just trying to establish order and trust in the leadership of the church, but some in the church, including James White, complained that Butler saw the General Conference president as a general and everyone else as his obedient troops, which, by the way, is true. Oh, and we talked about the struggles of the curriculum at Battle Creek College before closing off with J.N. Andrews' trip to Europe as the church's first official foreign missionary. And one more thing, the Dime Tabernacle in Battle Creek, the church's newest, biggest church, was dedicated. So yeah, we covered a lot, but now we're all caught up, so let's get moving again. Let's start by looking at the strategic map, because our main players are spread out by the end of the 70s. J.N. Andrews is in Europe, of course. John Loughborough left California to plant churches in Oregon, Nevada, and Washington until, in 1878, he too was shipped off to England as the first missionary there. So bereft of Loughborough and Andrews in Europe, the leaders in America were left to push the message west as fast as they could with even fewer people. When James took the church presidency away from Butler, Butler did a stint as president of the Iowa-Nebraska Conference before returning to take the reins of the church yet again in 1880 when James's health began failing once more. Uriah Smith still ran the review, but also started training workshops for Adventist ministers. It was kind of like a mobile seminary. He also invented a folding chair thing for school kids, which he filed a patent on, built a company around, made thousands of dollars, and then sold it in three years. James and Ellen White spent some time in Texas. Traveling north through Indian country, by which they meant Oklahoma, they wound their way through the woods, terrified at one point that they might be attacked by Indians. So they set two-hour guard shifts around the clock, and then a storm caught them off guard, flooding their tents. And through all of this, James loved it. Indians, floods, caravans. It was a great distraction from church problems. Ellen White, on the other hand, found the whole trip kind of miserable and said she'd rather speak at 20 camp meetings that year than to make that same trip again. Colorado continued to serve as the oasis in the Whites' lives, but it was an oasis they didn't see nearly as much as they wanted to. James was increasingly aware that he needed to pace himself because his health wasn't recovering in the aftermath of his strokes as it used to. It left him increasingly irritable and impatient with people. He felt his own mortality all too keenly and pushed himself harder to work, work, work. James wrote in 1878 that he had been working for the Lord for 38 years, and it was a story of constant trial and sickness. James didn't attend the general conference session and J.N. Andrews's dedication of the Dime Tabernacle that year, 
for fear that the strain of traveling across the country would cause him to break down yet again. He concluded his article in the review with these wishful words, quote, With the blessing of God, we hope to restore that lost art in this fretting generation of growing old gracefully, end quote. He dreamed of taking a smaller leadership role, hiring a secretary to do much of his writing, and just take things a little slower. He promised that in 1879, he would only attend one camp meeting that whole year. Now listen, raise your hand if you think that James White is going to grow old gracefully. Well, this is a podcast, and I can't see any of your hands, but the right answer is, not chance, James. He didn't attend one camp meeting in 1879, he attended ten. And I'm not saying this to judge James White, but so that we can understand his struggle to juggle taking care of himself and taking care of his church. He wasn't wired for relaxation, though he knew that he needed it. And the tensions within himself boiled over into tensions with others. There weren't really many people that James didn't quarrel with at one point or another in the 1870s. He argued with his wife Ellen, of course, with Butler, with Uriah Smith, with his sons, with Kellogg. And speaking of Kellogg, Kellogg had the Health Institute off of James's plate, which was great, right? I'm sure on one level he was thankful for that. But Kellogg was just as strong-minded and stubborn as James, and the two clashed on the best way to run things. For his part, Kellogg had James kicked off the Health Institute's board of directors, and James told his son not to let Kellogg make too many business decisions because he is, quote, a perfect failure at that. White also pushed the General Conference to censure Kellogg for working too hard and being bad at delegating work to others. And if you looked up the definition of the word hypocrisy at this moment, James White's picture would be plastered right next to it. To add to all of this, James didn't want his Signs of the Times reprinting any articles on health by Kellogg either, because James considered that his forte. And for his part, once again, Kellogg was a tough negotiator when it came to getting the lowest possible cost for the Review and Herald Publishing Association. The price was so low that the Review had a hard time making any money on books that Kellogg would write. So White jumped on this to say that Kellogg was just using the church to launch his own career. And the unspoken trend for loyal Adventists, James essentially argued, had been to sacrifice for their church, and Kellogg's behavior seemed more like sacrificing the church for his own gain. The growing conflict between James and John Harvey Kellogg bothered Ellen White to no end. She sat both men down and tried to knock some sense into them. James was being unfair but, as it would turn out, maybe not too far off the mark. James feuded with Butler, too. While the latter was General Conference president, he let James know that he was having to deal with a mess that James had made when he was president. But James was in no mood to listen. I am sorry, my dear brother, James wrote Butler, that you are compelled to fill the place God designed that I should occupy. On another occasion, when someone criticized James, he exploded and threatened to resign all his offices. He had a hard time watching from the sidelines as other people made decisions that he disagreed with. Quote, My brethren are all crazy, and left to themselves would soon put me in the grave. I am the only sane man in the crowd, James said. Now listen to what he said carefully. 
Do you notice how he blames church leaders for putting him in the grave? As if running the church as best they can was somehow a, a personal attack on James. And this is how people with James's choleric temperament talk. They want to drive the car, but if they cannot drive, they're often the ones in the back seat telling the drivers how to drive. Cholerics such as James love control, love knowing what's going on, love driving the car, but they also want to escape the weight of all of the responsibility. They take so much onto their own shoulders that it crushes them. They want help so long as that help does things exactly the way that they want, which of course they seldom do. So that's the plight of cholerics like James White. They want to be in charge, but when they're in charge, they take on too many responsibility and they need other people to be in charge. But when those other people become in charge and they make bad decisions, the clerics feel like they have to take everything back on their shoulders yet again. That's why James took it personally when the new leaders in Battle Creek made decisions he didn't like. I trust you guys to make every decision the way I would, and when you don't, then it's like you're telling me that I have to come back and take charge again. Or at least... That's the way it feels. James's strokes and declining health made the downside of being a cleric even worse. He had dealt with criticism his whole life, and he could usually take it well. In 1844, James was at a prayer meeting. One of the guys got down on his knees and started praying obnoxiously, something like, Oh God, please forgive James White for his pride, his monstrous pride, blah, 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 blah. It was so awkward. And apparently this guy just didn't like the fact that James had a starched collared shirt on. Even when James told him that he had just borrowed the shirt, it wasn't even his, the guy still got on James's case for daring to wear such an extravagant luxury. Responding to this, James wrote years later that the whole situation was enough to make even the most serious Christian laugh. Right? That's how James often used to deal with criticism. But now James didn't feel well. The strokes he suffered from time to time for the past 10 years wore him down. He didn't have as much patience for criticism. He had fought with Ellen because he thought she was too critical. He thought the church leaders too critical. He thought his son Willie too critical. James was being too sensitive. But it's also true that others were slow to appreciate what he was going through. They acted as they had always acted with James, but James was changing. Willie White was proving himself to be as capable in the work as his brother Edson was incapable. He had governed the Pacific Press under the heavy hand of his always watchful father, and even got married in 1876, by the way, but he was soon called to join the others in Europe. But thankfully, for those in America, Edson had made a mess of the Pacific Press when he was in charge, and Willie was told to head out there instead to fix it. Ellen White went out west also, spending some time at the church's newest sanitarium called the Rural Health Retreat, and that was the baby of Merritt Kellogg, the old pioneer of Adventist work in California. Kellogg had been living in San Francisco when he was invited by the owner of a nearby hydrotherapy retreat to live at the retreat as a doctor. If he would look after some of the patients, then he could have free room and board, and that seemed great to Kellogg. Months later, one of the patients asked Kellogg if he'd like to run his own health institute. Well, sure, said Kellogg, but I don't have any cash. The patient said, but I know of a great location, to which Kellogg replied, that's nice, still don't have any cash. So the man asks, how much would you need? And so Kellogg said, at least $5,000, and you can guess how this is going to end.
The patient said he'd put up most of the money, and voila. Suddenly, Kellogg was living on the building site, taking pick and shovel and paving the road himself. And that's when someone told him that Ellen White had announced in Oakland that they would have a health institute on the West Coast. Ellen didn't say where it would be, only that you had to cross a river to get to it. Well, that seemed interesting to Kellogg, so Kellogg asked when Ellen White had said these words, and another man said, oh, about two years ago. All right, so Kellogg wrote James and Ellen to come see what they were doing. Ellen took one look at it and said, yep, this is the place I saw in my vision. And so everyone went back to work. Kellogg and his new friends built the place with their own hands. I mean, they dug the foundation, they ordered the lumber to be cut, they found the wagon and found the horses to haul it, they framed it, they plastered it, they did everything. And when they advertised their new sanitarium, they advertised it in a paper for one week. And so many people wrote to Kellogg that they had to tell the paper to stop running the advertisement, which is one of the few times that's probably ever happened in history, right? Five days later, the place was packed. Five months later, they had to start pitching tents so that the workers could sleep somewhere because there were so many patients, they kicked the workers out of the building. The next year, they nearly added another 1,000 square feet to the building. And what you are left with is the oldest, continuously running Adventist hospital in the world. So if you're in Northern California, go check out St. Helena Hospital. Merritt Kellogg is the man. Now back to James and Ellen. James and Ellen spent much of 1880 apart, recognizing that God had called Ellen to work in the West and James in the East. And with so many old, trusted leaders in Europe, what else could you do? James confessed to his son Willie that, I undertake to do too much work. I shall not deny that I love to work and am inclined to take too much on my own hands. So yeah, no kidding, James. James felt once again that people were being too critical, and he lashed out. Ellen would write to try to rein him in. Her letters at this point show just how well she was coming around to understand her husband's temperament and predicament. She told him, quote, One man's mind and one man's judgment must not mold the cause of God. Be cautious in your words. Trust not too much in your own judgment. Mar not the work of God by your likes and dislikes. I was shown that you must give respect to the judgment of your brethren while you shall advise and counsel with them. Despite the gentle rebuke, most of their letters show how much they missed each other. When he was angry or hurt, she would try to remind him of all that God had done for them, to look at the bright side of things. She modeled this kind of faithful optimism when she said, Quote, I must not let one thought or one feeling arise in my heart against my brethren, for they may be in the sight of God more righteous than I. We have battles to fight with ourselves, but we should continually encourage the brethren. End quote. Her counsel, kind, wise, patient, thinking of those in leadership, she said that, quote, Satan is willing and anxious to tear them down. Let us not unite our forces with his. They have their conflicts and trials. God forbid that we should add one trial to those they have to bear, End quote. Ellen reminded James that he wasn't the only one with burdens to carry. It's so hard to think of other people and what they're going through while we're suffering. And James's wife was there to help him win some perspective. 
And James demonstrated this perspective from time to time, and in particular in a review article in August 1880. James wrote that it had been 15 years to the day that he had had his first stroke and expressed his gratitude for all of the care of his fellow church members. A few weeks earlier, he wrote to Willie and told Willie that he had seen his mistakes and needed his son's help to be better. For James, 1880 was a constant battle against his nature. He knew, he knew it deep down in his soul that he just had to give up so many jobs and relax. He had to take care of himself. At no point in his life was he so open and sincere about what people had been telling him for decades to do. But he also wanted the responsibility. Maybe he didn't know who he even was without it. The 1880 General Conference helped. James was given one job and one alone, head of the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association. Now this General Conference was a success. The message was going well in Canada. There were enough believers in Denmark now for them to form a conference of their own. The back page showed drawings of Battle Creek College, the Review Office, and Kellogg's Health Reform Institute, which he had started calling a sanitarium, and so we will too. James and Ellen left the general conference session with dreams. They were going to write all winter and the summer of 1881, staying in Battle Creek and then going to Colorado to write in the spring. Of course, none of that worked out the way that they planned, but you could have guessed that, couldn't you? In early 1881, James took D.M. Canwright to New York with him on some printing business. Canwright was immensely talented as an evangelist and much admired in the church. He would burn bright hot with energy and ideas before suddenly cooling off and distancing himself from the church. And by 1881, he was warming back up again, and James found him firmer in the faith than ever before. Now, Arthur White, a grandson of James and Ellen, thought that James liked Canwright because James felt alienated from general conference leadership. Speaking of which, Butler was back in charge by this point. For almost 20 years, it was either James White or George Butler keeping the president's seat warm. So James trusted Canwright. He told Canwright that the general conference leadership should be changed and that he thought he and Canwright should be among those in charge. Despite his ambition for retirement, James found it too hard to avoid wanting to be on top. He served a stint as pastor of the Tabernacle in Battle Creek. He even married one of the Kellogg boys, William Keith. Meanwhile, Ellen White kept conspiring to help James. Her letters constantly show how well she was beginning to understand her husband, better perhaps than he understood himself. She remarked to Stephen Haskell that James's influence wasn't what it used to be because he wasn't patient and kind. He was too much a dictator. Then she warned Haskell to not follow in James's footsteps. James was a founder of the church, and he could be forgiven much that wouldn't be forgiven in a younger pastor, she told him. But Ellen White also felt trapped. She very much disagreed with James's grumpy spirit. But what could she do? If she told James all that she felt, if she dumped her frustration on him, it would only make things worse. He would recoil at the criticism, become more depressed, more irritable. If it had been anyone else, wouldn't she have written that person a strong rebuke? 
Was she playing favorites? The Whites traveled to the Iowa camp meeting in June, where Ellen White spoke about temperance and specifically the prohibition of alcohol. Adventists had a duty to vote for prohibition, she said, even if that vote was on Sabbath, which she thought would shock Adventists. Ellen also had a dream about Kellogg and his sanitarium. In it, Kellogg was piling up stones in order to stone James White to death, one stone for each sin James had committed. Ellen White looked away and then saw her husband piling up his own pile of stones to hurl at Kellogg. The two had sparred in real life, of course. Both were cut from the same cloth, though neither actually wanted to kill the other, of course. But the dream stuck with Ellen. It seemed an ominous sign between the brilliant young doctor and the founder and pillar of the church. Trouble was brewing with Kellogg, and not just because of James. Something in Kellogg's character in the dream seemed devious. Well, as the summer of 1881 wore on, James's attitude toward Kellogg seemed to improve. He was in one of his good moods in these weeks, and she and James notified the church on August 2nd that they would attend camp meetings in Quebec, in Maine, and in Vermont, providing that the Lord would give them strength and health. James printed an editorial in the review shortly before he left, lauding the beautiful Advent message about death and sleeping into your grave until Jesus comes again. And then the next issue of the review notified the Adventist world that James White had died. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.